All right, I want to welcome you to Plum Creek Chapel this morning, and we are taking a look at what lies ahead, a biblical overview of the end times, and really looking forward to the material we're going to cover today. Let me make a couple of quick announcements. We're entering into the busy season with Christmas holidays and traveling and things like that, so let me kind of update you a little bit on the schedule. We'll not have our midweek live stream and midweek service here where we're studying how to read and understand the Bible uh, for the next two weeks. Uh, instead, on those days, I'm, I've posted an uh, archived podcast that's never before been on our podcast channel, uh, so you can watch for those if you just want something to listen to that day, but no uh, live stream video, no recorded video the next two uh, Wednesdays. We will resume our a study of how to read and understand the Bible on Wednesday, December the 15th. And that will be uh, right here at 6 o'clock or live streamed at 6 o'clock Mountain for those of you that are online. I also want to remind you, if you haven't done so yet, to download the free Not By Works mobile app. Uh, it's got everything in one location, all of our videos, podcasts, resources, links to the church here and all of the church resources, links to other resources from Not By Works at the online store, all kinds of good information in one central location. So if you go to notbyworks.org on the web, you'll see a banner there on the home page that you click and it'll explain exactly how to download the free app. But that's for your mobile phones or for your tablets and other mobile devices. Uh, so then also, uh, lastly, if you have not yet picked up a copy of What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times, the book, uh, those are available on the table at the back, and also you can order those online at notbyworks.org. All right, well, we have been taking a look at the tribulation, and uh, we've been here for quite some time because the Bible has a lot to say about this future seven-year period. You see it marked in yellow here on the screen. Obviously, the end times as a whole begins with the rapture and ends with the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, but there's a lot that takes place between those two events. And as you've heard me say many times, these, the end times uh, constitute 16% of the Bible, uh, unfulfilled prophecy. So I was talking to someone on the phone uh, just this week about how, uh, as you've heard me say, if you ignore a Bible prophecy, you're really only uh, teaching and focusing on 84% of the Bible, roughly speaking. Um, so we believe in teaching the whole counsel of God, and especially in times like these, we like to know what lies ahead. We want to know what the Bible says about future things, or what theologians call eschatology. So even though this uh, tribulation period is just a seven-year period, it gets a lot of real estate in Scripture, and so that's why we're spending so much time on it. In fact, the book of Revelation, uh, its primary focus is that seven-year period in terms of the number of chapters, chapters 6 to 19, effectively. So, uh, so that's why we're sort of uh, talking about uh, all of this. We started with the sealed judgments, and we looked at those seven judgments of the Lord that constitute the wrath of God, the beginning of the wrath of God as it is poured out over the, tri over the seven-year tribulation. Uh, we began our look at the tribulation by looking at biblical terminology from the Old and New Testament. And if you recall, one of the frequent uh, phrases that is used to describe this future seven-year period is the great day of the Lord's wrath or the day of the Lord's wrath or the wrath of the Lord, those types of things. And so these judgments 
that the book of Revelation describes, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, comprise the wrath of God. And this is just the way God chose to reveal them uh, in the Word of God and to pour them out on the earth. The seal judgments are seven scrolls, each of them having a judgment of God that's being poured out on mankind. And uh, when those seals are opened, we read what the judgment is. And so uh, the wrath of God for the seal judgments involves the introduction of the Antichrist, him being granted authority to, to make war and, and, and uh, conquer the earth. Uh, if you remember, the, the rider on the white horse goes out conquering and to conquer. That's the Antichrist. Um, he then brings famine and ultimately the death of a quarter of the world's population that is on the earth at the time. Uh, then we see uh, those that are martyred uh, crying out for revenge, which in, invokes God's wrath even more. And then we see earthquakes and co- uh, cosmic disturbances. And then the seventh judgment uh, opens up seven more judgments, which we read about in Revelation 8 and 9. Unlike the seals, rather than being on a scroll and opened when the seal is broken, these, are not, these judgments are announced with the sounding of a trumpet. And these are getting worse and worse as we go through the seven-year period. By the time the trumpet judgments uh, occur, we're in uh, the second half of the tribulation. And one-third of the earth uh, is burned up, one-third of the sea turns to blood, one-third of fresh water is poisoned, one-third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. And then you have three very intense judgments of God that are called woes, the first, second, and third woe, which are the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgments. And this involves locusts invading the earth, special demons that kill another one-third of the world's population. And then... You've got the seventh trumpet sounding, which introduces the seven bold judgments, which we looked at last week. And the bold judgments all take place at the very end of the uh, uh, tribulation. So if we go back to our chart here, you can see at the bottom of your screen a kind of a representation of when these judgments take place. So the seals begin at the beginning of the tribulation. The first seal is the unveiling of the Antichrist, which corresponds to Daniel 9.27. They kind of cover the first three and a half years. They have a lasting effect and so forth um, spread out. And then you get to the trumpet judgments, which are in the second half. And then the bold judgments, even though on the chart it sort of makes it look like they they cover the last half of the second half of the tribulation, they're really scrunched all together probably in the last uh, day or two maybe three days, 72 hours of uh, the tribulation period. Because all of these bold judgments relate to the preparation for the final battle, the battle of Armageddon, when Christ comes back uh, to inaugurate the kingdom. So these involve ugly and painful sores. All sea life is destroyed. So you can see the, the, the uh, totality of the devastation here, uh, the comprehensive nature. All fresh water is destroyed. The world's climate is altered. And then there's an unusual darkness, which we talked about last week, often accompanies momentous occasions in God's divine plan of the ages, such as at the crucifixion. Uh, Then the Euphrates River dries up, and then we see the worst earthquake in the history of mankind, again, paving the way for the armies of the Antichrist and Satan to to come across and battle in the the valley of uh, Jehoshaphat there, the uh, hills of Megiddo for that final battle. And so God is sort of preparing the way like He did with the parting of the Red Sea with the Egyptian soldiers to cross, but then 
they, they were flooded and defeated. So what I want to do today is I want to go back and pick up uh, some of these interludes. So if you notice the blue text, this is an outline of the book of Revelation. Uh, and it's been a while since we've kind of walked through this. I've showed it frequently, but just to, to make sure, because I know we have people joining all the time online. Uh, the first chapter is the introduction of this final book of the Bible. And it's not only the final book canonically, it's also the final book written chronologically. Uh, and it introduces Christ. It is the revelation, singular, of Christ. The apocalypsis is the Greek word of Christ, the unveiling or the revelation of Christ. Um, then in chapters 2 and 3, we're dealing with literal letters from Christ to seven literal first century historic churches. And uh, he has some good things and bad things to say about them. And then he, we see sort of the introduction or the preparation for this seven-year tribulation that is going to constitute the main section of Revelation. And that's chapters 4 and 5, which is a, a theodicy, which is a justification for what's about to happen, what gives God the right to pour out His wrath on the earth. And so we see this beautiful section that we did look at in one of our previous sessions several weeks ago of, uh, you know, the, the scene in heaven, uh, the 24 elders are crying out who is worthy to open the seal and gathered around the throne, and then we hear that the Lamb... He is worthy because He was slain and, and His blood was shed. And so Christ then opens the seals of God's judgment, and we see that starting in verse in chapter 6. Uh, and then uh, the tribulation includes chapter 6, chapters 8 and 9, and chapters 15 and 16 related to the bold judgments. But down here below, you see these little interludes, uh, supplemental information. So you see in, along the timeline in blue, we jump from chapter 9 all the way to chapter 15. Now we didn't look at chapter 15 last week. It's just eight verses and it's an introduction to the bold judgments. And uh, so I didn't take the time to go through that. But really 15 and 16 together are the bold judgments. Uh, but you don't see anything there in the timeline in blue from chapters 10 to 14. That's because if you look below, this involves these little interludes, these supplemental pictures and visions of things that relate to the end times but aren't necessarily in the flow of thought, almost like parentheticals, if you will. And so I want to go back and catch uh, some of these. Uh, we've, uh, we, we've, again, we've kind of looked at the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments, and eventually we're going to get to the return of Christ, the millennium, and the eternal state, the, the kingdom age, which will be glorious time to look at all the characteristics when, when Christ comes back and makes all things new. But we've got a little more work to do, and I want to focus on some of these uh, interludes. And I want to start with chapter 14, because it's kind of uh, the, the, the prelude, if you will, to the final battle and the, uh, the, the return of Christ. And there's a lot that uh, is really of interest here uh, in chapter 14. So if we go to chapter 14... Uh, what we see is that uh, in chapter 13, to put it in the flow of thought of these interludes, in chapter 13 we read about the defeat of the forces of evil and we read about the mark of the beast in chapter 13. And now John in this vision is given some information about the triumph of the forces of good. Um, it's the opposite picture, if you will. It's a, it's a, what's called a proleptic, meaning a, an anticipation or a looking ahead. Uh, so he hasn't walked us through 
the bowl judgments yet. We looked at them last week, but in John's book of Revelation, we haven't seen them yet. But he's basically skipping that for the moment to say, here's where we're headed. And it's anticipatory or a foreshadowing, kind of not really foreshadowing, but sort of a glimpse of what is coming after the bowl uh, judgments. So chapter 14 really answers two questions as I understand it. It answers, what about those 144,000 Jewish witnesses and their followers uh, who refuse to take the mark of the beast? Um, if you remember back in chapter 7, you see it here again underneath, it's the first, uh, first line here. The, after the seal judgments, the 144,000 were introduced. Now, they had already started their ministry. It's just it, it wasn't mentioned in chronological order. It's just an interlude. And so the, uh, the book of Revelation introduces them in chapter 7. We've referenced them off, often. They are 12,000 missionaries from each of the 12 tribes of Israel for a total of 144,000 who are marked out at the beginning of the tribulation, supernaturally. Somehow they come to faith, they hear the gospel, whether they, uh, you know, after the rapture, whether they uh, picked up a gospel track or had already heard it but had not believed it and now they did, or perhaps God supernaturally reveals the gospel to them, but some way or another they get saved. And the only way to get saved in any age of human history is by faith. From Adam to the end of the age, faith is the only means of salvation. So they get saved, and then God seals them for protection uh, with His name on their forehead so that they can go about the earth sharing the gospel, bringing others to faith during this devastating, horrific time of the great day of the Lord's wrath. So He had mentioned them in chapter 7, and then we get all the way through chapters 8 and 9, and, and these judgments, the seal and trumpet judgments have already happened. Um, then he has some other interludes you see there in chapter 10, 11, and 12, and 13. And by this point, the reader might be wondering, how's it going? You know, what's going on with these 144,000 missionaries? You know, you, you mentioned them, but let's talk about them again. What, what happened with them? And so uh, that's one question that chapter 14 answers, is what about those 144,000 witnesses? But the second is what happens to those uh, to the, the beast, the, the Antichrist, and his followers. You know, he's had a lot to say about it, especially in chapter 13. Chapter 13 of Revelation is one of the key chapters that give us information about the future Antichrist in, in all of Scripture. Um, he's mentioned in many passages. Paul mentions him, the Old Testament uh, prophets like Daniel mention him, uh, Jesus mentions him. But chapter 13, we get a lot of data about the, the Antichrist. And so that question is also on our minds as we wonder what happens to him. So really two questions are going to kind of unfold as we, as we go through chapter 14. What happens to those 144,000 missionaries? And what happens to those who take the mark uh, of the beast? So again, this is kind of a, an anticipatory uh, chapter looking ahead to the end result. Um, but it provides encouragement by reminding us of the ultimate triumph for those who refuse the mark of the beast. So you have to remember the, the uh, point of God's revelation. Paul said that all Scripture is profitable. 
And even though at this point in human history, when these things we are reading about are happening, the church will have already been raptured, rescued, and, and, and uh, in heaven, experiencing the judgment seat of Christ and preparing to come back with Christ to inaugurate the kingdom. Uh, there will still be, obviously, people on earth. Initially, those who were left behind because they never believed the gospel. And then by this point, midway through uh, the tribulation, approaching the very end of the, the seven-year tribulation, you've got believers, you've got unbelievers, you've got Satan and his army, you've got that unholy trinity that we talked about last week of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Um, uh, so uh, the, the question is, for, for those that are alive at that time, they're going to be reading Scripture, and this is going to essentially be almost like a play-by-play. -play. It's almost going to be like a transcript of what they're watching on the news and watching unfold in global events all around them. And so they, want, they might want to know, and certainly we want to know as we understand God's plan of the ages, what happens to the, to the uh, uh, you know, Antichrist and those things. Um, so it's as if before getting to those final judgments, those intense, bold judgments that we looked at last week, um, uh, God says, look, I know things are getting bad. The wrath of Satan through the beast is uncontrollable. The tyranny is almost unbearable. But hold on. Blessing awaits. Justice is coming. So in chapter 14, we see a series of sort of declarations, if you want to call them that, directed at certain groups of people or about certain uh, groups of people. And the first thing we see is this reference, once again, to the 144,000, the only other time that it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. He introduced these missionaries in chapter 7. Now he comes back to them again in chapter 14 in verses uh, 1 through 5. So, we see uh, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having their name, having uh, the father, his father's name written on their foreheads. And that's what we had read about back in chapter 7 as well. So in chapter 14, three times we're going to see this phrase, Then I looked. And, and in, in here and then in verse 6 and in verse 14, each time it introduces a new scene. Again, this is proleptic. John is taken to heaven and seeing these visions, kind of looking ahead. It's not necessarily uh, the, the chronological blow-by-blow blow that we were seeing with the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. Um, and so this first scene, and this, by the way, is common in John in the book of Revelation. We saw the same phrase, uh, then I looked in chapter 13, introducing new scenes. But then he says, and uh, behold, behold emphasizes the greatness of what John saw and is about uh, to recount. So first thing he sees is a lamb standing on Mount Zion. So this is a yet future time at the end of the Great Tribulation when Jesus Christ returns to the earth. Uh, his second coming doesn't actually take place here. It takes place in chapter 19 after the bold judgments, but John is looking ahead and seeing it as if it had already happened. And he sees the lamb standing on the earth on Mount Zion with the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that God had sealed back in Revelation chapter 7 uh, before him. And he paints a vivid contrast between the lamb standing and the dragon in chapter 12 pursuing and the evil beasts of 13 rising up. And here's the lamb standing there. 
And I heard a voice from heaven, an angelic choir sings out, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. A new song in the Old Testament was a song of praise to God for His specific new mercies in a particular instance and in response to His mighty acts of deliverance or provision or whatever it might be. Uh, A new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And then we see three occurrences of the pronoun these, identifying how these 144,000 are worthy of special honor. Well, first, these 144,000 deserve special honor because they remained celibate during their seven-year ministry. They had not had physical relations with women. The nature of their calling and purpose at this pivotal time in human history was too great to be distracted by normal courtship and romance. Paul, if you recall, had said something similar to the Corinthians, encouraging them to remain unmarried because of the nature of the distressing times in which they lived, 1 Corinthians 7. But second, these 144,000 deserved special honor because they followed the Lamb faithfully during their lives. This, of course, was extremely difficult given the time in which they lived, the tribulation. Remember, the 144,000 were sealed for protection, but that does not mean that they didn't face the same tensions and stress and temptations and things that other uh, people did after they got saved during the tribulation. And then third, these 144,000 evangelists deserve special honor because they represent the first of many other Jewish believers who will enter the millennium as living uh, believers. And I was talking to someone at the break about when different believers of different ages will be resurrected to enter the kingdom. And uh, and I have a chart in our chart book that talks about this, but we know from Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26 that at the second coming, any tribulation saints that died, any Old Testament saints that died will all be resurrected to experience the kingdom. It doesn't mean they're going to reign with Christ or have the special privileges and position in the kingdom that the church has, the bride of Christ, but they will all be in the kingdom together. So again, if you go back here to what we're looking at here, it's right here at the end of the, uh, the seven-year tribulation, and the 144,000 have been serving and, and sharing the gospel throughout this entire, uh, throughout this entire time. So then we go to verse 5, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And I want to take a moment to kind of talk about this. The 144,000 being described as without fault were those who had not fallen prey to the greatest deception ever seen on earth. Remember what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. Multiple times He, he challenges the future generation that will be alive during the tribulation of Jews, is who he's talking to in particular, to be not deceived. In fact, the, the, the Olivet Discourse begins with those, that word, be not deceived. And we know, Jesus says, it will be the, the greatest time of, of deception in the history of the earth. But what else do we know? We know from 2 Timothy 3.13 and then that in the present age, the church age, deception is always getting worse and worse and worse. And so it follows from multiple passages, that this final seven-year period, when the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth and just before the Messiah comes back and takes the throne, that we will see incredible 
deception. But these 144,000 are to be commended because they didn't fall prey. Just because they were sealed, remember, doesn't mean uh, that they might not have been. Uh, they, they, they rejected the lies of the Antichrist. They rejected the mark of the beast. They didn't go around repeating the lies that had been pouring forth from the one world government leaders. Sound familiar? Uh, they didn't point to Romans 13 and say, we have to submit to the government no matter what. Point me to the nearest drive through tattoo center where we can line up and get the government mark. No, they resisted the transhumanist agenda to build back better.